There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hey, this is Bryant Arnold, also known as Dragon from Skinwalker Ranch, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. As always, my name is Andy, and this is episode 15, my interview with British UFO publisher, author, researcher, and much more, Philip Mantle. Before I get to the interview with Philip Mantle, just once again, thank you to everyone who has listened to the most recent shows. I had TUP Talks episode 3 with myself and Dan covering episodes 5 and 6 of Unidentified Season 2. TUP Talks 4 covering the season finale will be out with you in the next 7 to 10 days with myself and Dan's thoughts on the show as a whole as well. Over this weekend, I do plan on this being the first of three shows released. Today is the interview with Philip Mantle. I'm hoping tomorrow, Saturday the 5th of September, as you listen to this, will be the first That UFO Update show much anticipated, long awaited. Thank you for bearing with me. I just want to make sure it's the best it can be before it comes out. I've got some new music lined up for it as well, a new logo and a few other bits and pieces for that show too. And that's going to be a weekly feature, I'm hoping, just rounding up the week's UFO news from around the world just to kind of keep everything in one place and on track. Um, After that, I've got David Marceau I'll be speaking with on Sunday. David was in Unidentified Season 2. He is one of the military servicemen who saw a huge craft up very very close abnormally close for what we normally see with these types of encounters and i've put a artist rendering of what he saw on my twitter if you've got any questions for david before sunday please send me them over and i'll get those asked to david on the show as well but that's going to be a show similar to the bonus episode i released with jeremy mcgowan last month and that was a great conversation if you remember folks What I'd also like to do is thank everyone who had signed up to the Patreon in August. If you signed up or upgraded to the $10 level, I sent out and you should now have or be getting your That UFO Podcast logo t-shirt and stickers. Anyone who signs up to the Patreon, no matter what level, I'll send you out stickers anywhere in the world and you'll get the logo t-shirt at the $10 level. If you are looking to spend a little bit more and support the podcast, if you sign up on Patreon to the $25 level for three months, you will be sent out a Patreon-exclusive That UFO Podcast hoodie as well. Again, folks, all optional. Just your listens to the show have been incredibly, incredibly humbling. All the messages I'm getting, the DMs are filling up every morning as well. Uh, My wife's hating the phone going off all the way through the night, so I've now got the notifications muted, but I do check them every morning, so it's great to hear from everyone, no matter where you are. And the emails are starting to come in now as well, folks, so thank you very, very much. So before we get to my interview with Philip, I've just got a couple of messages to play, and then we'll get into the conversation. Again, folks, thanks very much. Have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain? Or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you? Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? 
then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk. Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Folks, coming back from that message, we have with us uh, an author, researcher and publisher, among many other titles. Uh, one of the preeminent names in UK ufology, we have Philip Manto with me on the show. Philip, how are you doing? Uh, good evening, Andy. I'm fine, thank you. Nice nice to speak to you. Yes, and yourself, Philip. As I was discussing with you just, just there, um, a voice I've heard many times on many different interviews and shows myself, so it's nice to kind of interact with you. Uh, and again you're one of those names that's been synonymous with ufology throughout the uk um and it's nice to do this show as well at a reasonable hour as as we were saying when many of the interviews tend to be kind of us time so i appreciate you taking the time with us this evening philip no it's my pleasure i can assure you Bro, um so like i was saying you're associated with a lot of books um do you mind philip just to start off before we start discussing some of the titles tell us a little bit uh, and the listeners about flying disc press what it is how it came about and what you kind of do for your day job now yeah yeah no yeah no problem i mean you know in, in the past i've uh, communicated with colleagues in, in many different parts of the world first uh, um foremost uh, you know via ufo research but then I've also um, edited three uh, magazines down the years, two of which were on the newsstand. So that put me in touch with more people, you know, because I got them to write features or articles or whatever. So in in 2015, um, a colleague of mine in Poland, and I'll try and pronounce his name correctly, being a Yorkshireman, it's hard to get mm. my tongue around this, <laughs> but his name is Piotr. Peter, I'll say Peter, Peter Chielibius. Peter is, you know, speaks very good English, but he was um, trying to um, get better with his written English. So he actually sent me a, a manuscript. Peter's a UFO researcher. He's an editor of a magazine in Poland, you know, and um, this book was all about UFO sightings in Poland. Peter had, had written uh, a couple of articles for me previously, and I read it. And I thought, oh, that's great. It wasn't after getting it published. It was just trying to, you know, spruce up his written English somewhat. So a colleague of mine by the name of John Hansen, John's a retired CID detective down in the Midlands. John was already publishing his own books under his Haunted Skies banner. And I would recommend them. Just search Haunted Skies, John Hansen, a great series of books. So John persuaded me to set because what I, what I originally wanted to do was was wait a few years and then start publishing material once I'd I'd, um, I'd retired. At this point in 2015, I was still working for um, um, the bank. I worked for the Halifax Bank in Leeds at a big contact centre. Anyway, I took the plunge and. Um, I, 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 it was a steep learning curve, Andy. I had no experience in actually publishing anything. Uh, and I published UFOs over Poland in, in late 2015. And, and it just started from there. And the idea I had for Flying Disc Press was to try and uh, publish things that perhaps you'd not read before, like Peter's research from um, Poland. A lot of that had never been seen in the West simply because of the language barrier, you know, and I followed that up with UFOs in Romania, 
with a chap called Dr. Dan Farkas. And again, there's some fascinating material. I don't care who you are or how long you've been involved in the subject. I guarantee in books like that, there's a lot of stuff in there you will have never heard of. And um, and I took it from there. I, I you know I resurrected and republished a few little things just 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 to, just to keep things ticking over. Uh, and it's expanded since then. I I got the chance to take early retirement, so I did. So this is what I do full time. I, I I'm a writer, publisher, researcher. I do it full time. You know uh, I don't I don't have any. You know I have my pension. That pays the bills. <laughs> so if I don't sell any books, it doesn't matter. I can I can still keep the wolf from the door, you know. And I, I publish certain items as well, Andy, that I'm, I'm, you know, not necessarily looking at them from a commercial um, viewpoint. I just think that they need to be published, you know, and they should be there if anybody wants them. And um, so, you know, I, I have a whole range of publications. And in the last... Um, couple of years we've expanded um we now have flying express in latin america so uh, um, not all of our books but a number of them will be published and have been already in spanish and then we have flying express in france uh, so a number of our books uh, are, are being translated and published in french so we've got you know we also work um very close with a german publisher called nibe media uh, we have an agreement that they're going to publish all of our books in German. They've already published some, um, and and even a, a company in uh, in Moscow in Russia called Stigmarion. They've already published one of our books. Uh, there's three more ready to go, but they they're holding off uh, because of the, the the you know the COVID-19 pandemic. And we even have one in Japan. So we're looking, you know, we're looking to expand or work with others in different countries if we can. Uh, but we can guarantee, you know, we've got the English, Spanish and French. And, and you know, and anything beyond that is a bonus. So, uh, you know, I'm literally that's what's what I do. I'm either writing, researching or, or publishing material. And that's how, how Flying Express came about. Had my friend John Hansen not sort of pushed me a little bit, I probably would have waited. But I'm I'm, I'm glad he did. No, it's, it's a great story as well. And it's great to hear it going international and, you know, getting something within ufology out there, you know, from not just to do with UFOs. There's a lot of paranormal books as well uh, and the kind of paranormal subject in general, getting out there to the kind of world and the masses. My first experience with Flying Disc Press was with Jason Gleaves, who was really kind to come on the podcast in its very early days in episode three. I'd heard him like yourself on shows like Hubbard Hughes Unexplained and his book UFO Photo. I think it was actually his first interview he'd ever done was with Hubbard Hughes. Um, and it, it was fascinating to hear someone who was really down to earth and, you know, that again, like yourself, he wasn't saying I'm out doing this to make money this is just something that's a passion of mine and you're giving people that platform to have those conversations via a medium like books you know um and, and that's great because like you say you don't have to believe everyone's story but everyone's story deserves to be heard and deserves to be kind of shown in, in whatever kind of medium medium that is doesn't it well exactly you know and um you know i was i was very pleased to publish jason's first book i mean jason was in the RF for many years uh, and has, has concentrated uh, his his um, his aspect of UFO research on analysing film and photographs by, you know, with computer analysis. That's all what UFO photo 
is. You know, his first book, he um, he runs through some of the 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 common misidentifications that people take pictures of. You know, birds and so on. Um, and then we have a raft of 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 photos and stills from various films where Jason has analysed them, and then he explains how he goes about it. And um, you know, I, I, you know, I, it was Jason's dipping his toe into the into the field. He was very nervous, both with you know writing and publishing the book and being interviewed. Uh, I remember, I think, um, I think he did his first speaking engagement was over Blackpool Way, and he was very nervous about that. And I, I you know, I remember being, you know, feeling that same way myself many many years ago now, of course. So I could understand where it's come from, but it's nice, you know, you know, when you talk about UFO researchers with no disrespect, you know, you know, Jason's name won't always crop up. So it's nice to, to have, you know, people I think that deserve to be heard like Jason and his work and, um, and others, of course, you know, and that, and that, that's, you know, I think that's, that's served me well so far at Flying Dispress and, uh, and long may it continue. Absolutely, and there's a lot of great content I'm sure still to come. The the reason I've got you on the show though this evening is um, you'd got in touch about uh, a revised edition of one of your more famous books from the 90s that's came back out. It is Without Consent, a comprehensive survey of missing time and abduction phenomena in the UK. And what really gets me, is, as I've talked about a lot on my podcast, is that in the UK, because it's such a phenomena that we hear a lot of in America, Canada, South America you know so many different parts of the world but the uk is often that we tend to just be watching this happen elsewhere rather than you know be the focus of it so it's great to see that focus coming from the uk what happened that the book came about in the first place back in the 90s Mm. well well, my my co-author is a chap by the name of carl negatis carl was a um a a full fully fledged you know fleet street journalist worked for with you know some of the the top newspapers in the land uh, was highly regarded and um, while I was working at one of these newspapers we did a couple of features together so Carl left the newspaper industry and set up his own public relations company and uh, one of his clients was a, a TV production company in London and they just happened to say to Carl you know we're looking to make a a documentary about, you know, alien abductions. Do you know anybody? And he said, of course, I know just the man, you know. And um, Cal contacted me and uh, I spoke with the uh, the production company and, we, and Cal and I worked out a um, an idea for the show, which they loved, you know. Uh, and that, But, you know, for this documentary, but at, at the end, it, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't get the green light. And I just happened to say to Carl, that's a shame, you know, but I tell you what, I said, we'll make a nice book. And he says, well, it just so happens one of my other clients is a publisher uh, up in Cheshire. So I said, OK, Carl, you ask your publisher contact if, if they're interested. And if they are, we'll write the book together. So Carl asked, they said, that's great. Yes, please. So Carl set about interviewing a number of people. Um, his time was more limited than mine. So I, I took the responsibility of, I mean, this is in the early 1990s. It's the days before email or the internet. 
So I, I got in the car and, you know, whenever there was a chance to interview somebody, Andy, I did. I went to Scotland, Yarnock in the Woods, interviewed Robert Taylor from Livingston, although he'd, he'd retired by this point and he was living in Blairgowrie, was Mr. Taylor. Fascinating to speak to the gentleman. I went out to Wales. I went right down to the south coast of England. The only place I didn't go was Northern Ireland. And that was simply I couldn't find anybody to interview. You know, if I had, I would have been on the ferry and across uh, uh, to Northern Ireland. So, um, so we put the the, the you know the book together, and the idea of the book was to allow you, the reader, to to come to your own conclusions. We speculate on a number of possible ideas behind the phenomena, uh, but what we do point out, and and this was done on purpose is that the people that have these uh, experiences or encounters, whatever you want to call them, are just like you and me, Andy. They're Mr. and Mrs. Joe Average. I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. They're just ordinary members of the public. And they're going about their daily routine when these incidents take place, you know, driving home from work, taking a walk in the fields, you know, um, you know, Robert Taylor with his dog in the, in, you know, in the woods at Deckmont Woods just going about their day, everyday tasks when these experiences happen. And, um, and the reason that we stuck predominantly, well, exclusively, I should say, to the UK is for exactly what you've just said in that introduction there, was as far as the debunkers are concerned, you know, these encounters um, only happen to, you know, drunken rednecks in the middle of nowhere, you know, have been on the local moonshine. Well, you know, that's not the case. And we highlight this, you know, throughout the book, you know, and uh, I, I think we we did that quite successfully. So that was the reason and that's how it came about. And uh, it first came out in 1994, which seems a long time ago now. But <laughs> a few years after that, we released a paperback version uh, that had a couple of new things in it, but not to any great extent. Uh, and, you know, it's been sat there ever since. Um, we published it in uh, Italian and believe it or not, Romanian. I, I'm not quite. I, I, I went to a conference in the Republic of San Marino and I met a gentleman there from Romania who just happened to, uh, to be uh, a literary agent. And he, he got the book published in Romania. We never got paid anything for it. but I have a copy of it in Romania and it's sat here on my on my on my fireplace. And uh, same with Italy. We got it published in Italy, but they never paid us. But, uh, you know, I don't worry about things like that. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's how it all came about. So the book itself, when you think of it, that's, what, 26 years mm. since it was last published, not to throw the time back at you. I was eight years old, just to, <laughs> to date myself as well. So, uh, And you're looking at a time when you've got the X-Files coming on TV. It's, it's probably just its first couple of seasons. And UFOs as a culture was in a very different place to what it is now, particularly as things have, have escalated the last few years. What's come about now that you feel was the right time to publish a revised edition of the book? Well, it, it's something I'd, I'd thought about over the last few years, um, namely because, you know, even though the, the book was out, I hadn't stopped um, my, my involvement in this subject. And um, so there's a, you know, I was still working or investigating or have, you know, um, uh, case files, you know, in, in my in my possession. 
And um, also, you know, um, things became available that weren't necessarily available back in the 90s, in the early 90s. For example, one of the things in the book uh, I publish in full, um, the police uh, investigation um, to Robert Taylor's um, events in Livingston. And it's the only encounter that's ever had an official police investigation. And, of course, originally I didn't have the, the full uh, paperwork, but I have it all there from the police department and their foren forensic analysis of, of Mr. Taylor's trousers and, and so on. So, it's, I, you know, I could summarise it, but you can see I, I published it in full. I think it's about, I don't know, 10 or 11 pages long, something like that. Um but it's all there, so you can read every word it fit for yourself as well. And uh, so things like that became available as well, Andy, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to update it? And I also had some archive files that, for whatever reason, didn't make it into the original version of the book. So they were d dusted off. Um, give you one example. A famous uh, abduction case, probably Britain's best-known abduction case is... Um, that of Police Constable Alan Godfrey in November 1980 in Todmorden in West Yorkshire. He was a serving police constable uh, on duty at the time in his patrol car. He was just finishing his night shift when his encounter happened. You know, on the main, it's called Fernley Road that goes through Todmorden, encountered an object on the road blocking his patrol car. It had a, it was like a shape, like a, a children's a toy spinning top. Uh, it, but it was dark coloured. It had a bank of panels across the top and the bottom part was, was rotating. Um, PC Godfrey tried to get through to the station on his radio and it had no luck. He took out his notebook, you know, the patrol cars stationary at this point, and he drew it. Next thing he remembers, he's several hundred yards down the road driving the patrol car. So he turned around. It had been raining during the night, but the spot on the tarmac where this thing had hovered was now dry. And there was a swirl pattern of debris, you know, sticks and bit of rubbish and, and, and what have you. Uh, he reported it. When he got back to the police station, he was late. Couldn't understand that. Uh, his police book for underneath was split and he had a small burner on the on the instep in of, his, of his foot. And um, cutting a long story short, um, Alan Godfrey underwent three sessions of hypnotic regression and they were filmed. They were videotaped. Now, I was loaned a copy of the videotape many years ago. It, be, it belongs to a gentleman called Harry Harris. He was a solicitor from Manchester, but he was also a UFO researcher. And what I did, I made an audio recording of that um, videotape and I've transcribed it. So in the book, um, you can read the transcript of Alan Godfrey's hypnosis, which I, you know, personally, even, even now, you know, all these years later, I've, I've, I've having, you know, reread it again. I still find it fascinating. And so you can read, again, you know, the story is in the book of what, 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 what Alan encountered, but you have it, you know, verbatim, word for word of every, it's unlikely anyone will ever see that videotape again, but you can at least, 
see what Alan uh, was saying and what the hypnotherapist w- was asking him, you know. And I, I just found it fascinating. So there was there was new old stuff as well, if you like, Andy, that's gone into the book. Uh, so, you know, it, and it's in there. And again, you know, you're allowed to, to, to reach your own conclusions. So th- that, that's how it all came about. Plus, you know, I, I'm now publishing Flying Dispressed. We've been in lockdown, <laughs> so I had some time now to do it. Whereas a couple of years back, I was still working for for the bank and doing this on an evening. Um, so you know, it just seemed to fall into place. And without consent, 2020 edition is out now. And I feel your pain with trying to work a job and uh, juggle a a publishing company, working a job and trying to do a podcast at the same time as being a dad is uh, is hard enough. So, yeah, you've done well to get it to this point. that was a great example of one of the, the, the chapters in the book and like I say uh, we're going to encourage people to go out and buy a copy of the book and we'll put the links in the description and also later on you can tell us how we can get that one of the ones that stood out to me chapter six you know the ultimate encounter just the title yeah. alone but then going into it you've got again a police officer so I think there's a credibility there you've got a UFO missing time a photograph yeah uh, hypnotic regression you know, um, a saucer that looked like two saucers joined together, the chasing of this humanoid as well. That yeah. There's a lot in, you know, in a, in a really pretty compact story as well. So that one really jumped out at me. Well, yeah, well, I mean, that's on Il Climore. You know, as I'm, I'm a Yorkshireman born and bred. You know, we're all taught to sing on Il Climore by a, ta- a young age, I can assure you. <laughs> but it is on Il Climore, and it's not a difficult place to get to. Um the most famous location on Ilkley Moor, and there's a car park there, is, is the Cow and Calf Rocks. Uh, it's just two huge rocks that somebody would say looks like a cow on its calf. It just looks like two rocks to me. But, you know, further on down the road from there, there's a little, foot, a little track that takes you up to some buildings, and they're called White Wells. And they are white houses. So they, I think there used to be a cafe at one point. It was closed the last time I was there many, many years ago. And uh, this gentleman, uh, Philip Spencer, um, used to take a shortcut over the moor. And he used to have a little kit bag with him, you know, in there. It was a notebook, you know, you know, a compass, camera. And he was walking up, up, up uh, towards Whitewells one morning. And he sees this creature. And it is, to all intents and purposes, and I kid you not, a little green man. And it, it seemed to beckon him. So, like you said, he chased it up the moor. He took one photograph of it, took off after it. And and where this location is, it, it, this creature ran round into a dip. And this is a, an artificial landmark. I think many, many eons ago, the locals used to dig rock out of it. It's like, a, you know, and, and in there was this UFO, like you said, and off it went. Um, so Philip thought, I know in town, you know, in Ilkley, there's a um, 24-hour processing lab. No digital cameras in, in, in this age. And funnily enough, one of the strange things about it, he still had some film left in his camera, so he used it up on the way down. It was a common thing we used to do. If you wanted some photographs, you, you wouldn't put them in until you'd used all the film up. And lo and behold, the creature is there on the moor. He, the photograph has been analysed in several different places, all of that has come back to say, whatever that is, it is there and in the landscape. It's not been airbrushed in or anything like that. Um, and he had missing time, of course, because when he came down off the moors, it was light and it shouldn't have been. 
and he was he went through regressive hypnosis, recounted an abduction story, and um, and even claims to have a a visit from the the men from the ministry or the man from the ministry, the Ministry of Defence, who showed him an ID card. Um, and it, you know, no, we've, no one's come forward and and and, and, uh, and has proved this to be a fake or anything like that. That's why we call it the ultimate encounter. As far as I'm aware, and and uh, I'm willing to be corrected. You know, it's the only encounter of its nature that actually has a a photograph to accompany it. You know, and um, and it's fascinating. You know, I've been up in that location several times. Even filmed a, do- a TV show up there once, many many years back, um, talking about that incident. And the whole the whole Ilkley Moor is part of a bigger area. It's called Rumbold's Moor, and it's full of myth and legend. I think White Wells, the area just up up above, literally where this photograph was taken, is synonymous with sightings of fairies and things of that nature. Um, you know, so. Um, it's it, you know there's there's even on the moor when you go up onto Wilkley Moor and you can follow the footpath there is an a, an ancient stone there it's protected by an iron grid now because it's on the floor but it's got a SWAT sticker carved into it and it's one of the few SWAT sticker stones that uh, are around the world in different areas um, it was there long before old Adolf you know took the symbol on and used it for his own purposes. Um, so the whole area is steeped in, you know, myth and legend, and the Ilkley entity photograph is 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 another one of them, and and it's fascinating, it really is. Yeah, and, and there's a lot more fascinating stories in there as well, and people will just have to go and read those. Otherwise, it's this is pretty much becoming an audiobook, doesn't it? And that <laughs> defeats the purpose. Um, and it's, it, what I I got the feeling of as I was skimming through it too, in some of the other chapters and. As you mentioned, these are real people telling real stories that that happened to them. Uh, Ryan Sprague of Somewhere in the Skies has just released a book that deals with something very similar in the US where it talks about the human effect and the human impact of abduction stories. I think for so long and for so many, when you hear these stories, you you've, you automatically don't really, you don't almost care about the person or the character in the story. You want to hear about the spaceship. You want to hear about the aliens. You want to hear, did they go into space? Were they told anything special? But at the end of the day, these people then go back to their daily lives, don't they? And it, yeah. it can, it's, a, it's a snapshot in time for them. It's an incredible event. But this then stays with them for the rest of their lives. In catching up, you know, with the revised edition, did you speak to any of those people you spoke to for the book the first time round? Or in speaking with some of the newer cases, was there anything that's really hung with these people afterwards regarding any sort of after effects? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one lady I've kept in, well, there's a couple I've kept in touch with down the years. And it's just, you know, occasional email or uh, a phone call just to say, how are you doing? You don't necessarily talk about the subject it's just you know how are the how the how's the family you know how's your how's your job going you know just just as it's just a courtesy call to say i mean i mean if you want to talk really you know and um i i've I published a, a novel uh called once upon a missing time and it's it's actually based on without consent or the some of the research i did and and one of the abductees was in the book. She's called Rosalind Reynolds. I sent Rosalind the um, the manuscript of uh, Once Upon a Missing Time and says, "Tell me if I've got anything wrong. If you know, would you be offended as a as a a close encounter witness 
you know, if you read this book, and you know, and and she, you know, and she wasn't thankfully, so she gave it the thumbs up. So, um, you know, so that that, that you know that that's still in in publication, but. Um, I've lost your story now. Yes, I have kept in touch with them. And as as to what's happened to them, we noticed, even going back to the, the early 90s, Andy, was, uh, and I've spoken about this just recently, because like you said, with what, what Ryan Sprague mentions, we tended to concentrate on what the um, witness had to say, you know, what did it look like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we did find out that the, the, there was a small number of them um, had what I, I like to call, you know, side effects. And these tended to be of an artistic stroke, spiritual stroke, ecological um, aspect. Uh, for example, one young man who I called David over in Pafeli in northwest Wales. David was a young fella. I mean, there's a couple of pictures in there of David and me. Um, you know, he, he liked his rock music, his denim jacket. I was pretty much the same at his age. And he got a job uh, in a local hotel. And after his encounter, he, st- he started to write spontaneous poetry about what had happened to him. Uh, I wasn't allowed to put that in the books. He didn't want any of his friends to find out who was writing poetry. Um you had Elsie Okinson from from uh, Church Snow in, in near Northampton. Elsie um, became a spiritual healer, and she said that was a direct result of her encounter. You had a number of others who became interested in you know ecological or what we would call green issues today, environmental issues. Um, even John Day. Um, with his wife Sue and children from Avery and Essex back in the 1970s, John was a carpenter, but he went on to make the most beautiful dolls' houses. And he, almost instantly after the event, him and his wife became interested in uh, environmental issues. So there may be there may be more people who this has happened to Andy, but we just haven't asked. Because like you said, we tended to concentrate on getting the details of their encounter or their sighting. You know, um, we often ask, you know, has anything else happened to you? But we didn't say, you know, has your attitude towards things changed? Have you developed any uh, interest in other things? We never asked those questions. I just found out these things just by chance. So I, th- I think there's there's an area there of, of, of further study. and uh, But whether it will happen or not remains to be seen. But it's just just curious it's you know it's a fascinating thing you know uh, that 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 is these what, what i call side effects and uh, some of your listeners might know exactly what i'm talking about others might think well he's, he's talking rubbish but you know this is just what we found out um it's as simple as that and, and that's something if you're i'm sure you're familiar with to the stars academy and louise elizondo has talked about these five observables that craft um or experiences tend to have and he's now talked about a sixth observable which is biological effects on on people you know whether it was radiation burns or you know that sort of thing so it's something that's always followed this phenomena going down the time but on on the book again do do you feel there's much difference from when you approached the book and wrote the book in 94 along along with carl of course to 2020 in the the culture around ufos and the approach to it 
was there much difference did you see there's there's a, there's a bit of, a good bit of difference being i mean in 1994 when the first edition was published it was very difficult to get people to go on the record you know we knew of, of, of a handful of cases like alan godfrey uh, like john day we managed to find john uh, he'd moved you know many years before and we found him in suffolk and managed to get an interview with him, one of the few people to, to actually speak to him uh, face to face. Um, so, you know, people were, were, I would say, were much more reluctant to go on the record uh, then compared to today. Um, for example, we bring the, the book right up to date. There's even I think the last case in it is a lady that even that lives close to where I do. And um, so she's had encounters down the years, same as with, with an, a, a chap called David Rogers, D- David from the Midlands. You know, he, he, he's had encounters lasting for years, sightings, paranormal events and a close encounter, you know. Uh, uh, so I think it, it's I don't know if, if this is the right word. It's It's got easier to get people to speak again they don't always want their name using in public which is no big deal you know that's no big deal at all some aren't bothered um but i think it's just become easier and of course it's easier with the technology as well i mean for the original um, i did some mileage on in my little car in those days i can i I can assure you but it was the only way to do it and um i preferred to do it that way and uh, you'd follow it up with a phone call or, you know, a letter. For example, I mentioned the young man, David, out in uh, in northwest Wales. David was terrified of, of what had happened to him. And I mean terrified. And uh, when the, the first issue of the book came out, I sent a few of those that are featured in here a copy. And David, you know, wrote to wrote back to thank you, Philip. It was three years later. Before I heard from him again, he'd now got married and started a family of his own. And he said it took him three years to read the book because it still scared him that much. Um, David was remembered everything, you know, uh, but he, he had to undergo um, hypnosis uh, for therapy because he had nightmares about it. It scared him that much. Um, so he had to go for hypnotherapy at some point to, to relieve the, the, the fear. And um, again, you know, I asked David what he thought happened to him. He didn't have a clue, you know, he did not have a clue. And um, I, I was a fascinating young man. I went and interviewed him two or three times. And, his, you know, his, his, his story, you know, never changed. He didn't want any publicity. Um, you know, what do you say? You know, he, he was literally terrified. And um, I'm just glad I got the chance to speak to him when I did. Do you find there's anything unique or different about the the abduction phenomena in the UK than than anywhere else in the world? Not at all. No, I I think it it has uh, all the hallmarks uh, of from from no matter. I mean, there was a a study we we mention in the book, and it's still available, uh, done by a Dr. Eddie Bullard. Eddie Bullard is I think he's got his PhD in his doctorate in folklore. What he did, uh, he took all the cases he could find at that point in time that was published, you know, that was in the literature. So he wasn't going and speaking to people one-to-one. And um, he, he didn't necessarily look at the detail of what people said they saw. 
you know, like I saw a disc, I saw a box, I saw one that looked like the space shuttle, whatever. No, what Eddie Bullard did, he, he broke it, he broke the parameters down of the experience into certain sections. It's kind of what annoys me about this Elizondo guy. He's, he's inv- reinventing the wheel. It's just different name, you know. But what what um, what Eddie Bullard did was show you the parameters. I can't remember how many there were now, but there was a number of them that make up the close encounter experience. And these parameters took place no matter where you were in the world. You didn't necessarily, let's say there was 10. You didn't necessarily have all 10, but you, you know, and they all, and what's, what's curious is that they all went in the same, um, in the same manner, you know, one, two, three, four, you didn't, they weren't mixed up. Um, and it was, you know, it's fascinating to read. So no matter where you were in the world, if you had one of these encounters, it would be made up of some, if not all of these parameters in the same order. Um, so you know, what does that tell you about the experience? You know, for another, another example is there's a lady in the book called Jane Murphy. Jane lived near where I used to do. And, um, Jane had had a number of uh, experiences and she t- told me um, these these dream dreams stroke visions that she had of where she was impregnated by she called them aliens she believed that she had been abducted by aliens and she was pregnant but she wasn't pregnant in real life and she had a child and it was half alien and half half human and she described it looking like um, you know one of the cheap plastic dolls you can buy on the market or whatever, where he has really yeah. tatty hair. It looked like that. Now, at the time, I was I was in uh, regular contact with the late Bud Hopkins, who's probably the, the foremost uh, abduction researcher. And I would transcribe my conversations with, um, with Jane, because I tape recorded them with her permission, and I would stick them in the post, off to Bud. Bud had come back you know, with some questions and things like that. But it it was what what was peculiar is Bud was just starting to write about the same phenomenon himself in the US. And these these strange dreams and these these babies, Bud gave them a nickname, if you like. He called them the smart baby dreams. And uh, they weren't in any of his books or anything like that. So how how could you know a housewife Jane in, in West Yorkshire be talking about the exact same kind of experience that some lady three or four thousand miles away across the Atlantic was was having, you know, and, and that 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 fascinated me. And um, Jane went on to you know to have more experience. I've lost contact with her down the years. Uh, she's not at that um, location anymore. But she came to terms with with her experiences. She said, "Well, they don't they don't do me any physical harm, you know." And, you know, she just accepted that they happened and that was it, you know. So that that, that was uh, another fascinating aspect here. You know, people from thousands of miles apart talking about the same kind of thing. J- Jane hadn't read it anywhere. She had no UFO books or magazines anywhere in the house, you know. And she was just a normal, everyday housewife with a partner and a, a young daughter. I spoke to her partner. I spoke to her parents. You know, and it was just normal, you know, average people. I'd love to know your thoughts, Philip, just to push you for this. What do you think is happening with the abduction phenomena? Is this ET? Is it interdimensional? Is it UK or US governments, you know, 
basically experimenting with craft on their own people. What would you think? Well, it's very difficult, uh, Andy. I mean, we after the first book was published, we did a little poll of, of the abductees themselves and asked them that same question. Uh, some thought they were, you know, aliens from another world. Others thought it was some kind of spiritual experience. Most of them didn't have a clue. Um, but we, we were, you know, we're continuously told that, you know, UFOs are dead. It's finished with, you know, we know all the answers, but, you know, they, they're not. You know, it continues to be reported. Uh, people still uh, have these encounters, whatever they may be. And um, I'm still on the fence, Andy. I, I know they have these experiences and I, I don't have a rational explanation for them. You see, I can be as skeptical as the next man. And so I put my skeptical head on and you could say, you know, you might come across one or two cases where, yeah, there's a possibility that might be this or might be that. But there is no one blanket skeptical theory that, that would would account for them all. And uh, the, the, the last skeptical idea was a few years back now, and it was that these are people are suffering from sleep paralysis. We all have sleep paralysis every night. It's the thing that stops us falling out of bed. You know, and and the operative word is paralysis. You know, you know, these people weren't paralyzed. Some of them are driving the car. If you if you are paralyzed or have sleep paralysis while you're driving the car, you're going to end up dead. You know, uh, so it just didn't fit. You might find, a, a, you know, maybe one or two cases who you could shove into that category and think, well, maybe. But. These experiences didn't happen when people were in bed. You know, Alan Godfrey's in his patrol car, you know, drawing a picture of what's in front of him. You know, um, David's walking home from his friend's house. You know, <laughs> there isn't a, a, a one-off explanation that fits all, you know. Um, if you want, if you are a debunker, which is different to being a skeptic, you probably can get, you know, a a square peg and shove it in a round hole and, you, and you'll be happy with that. But it, do, it doesn't work that way. And then I got to something made me think when I published one of the books, um, the second book by Dr. Dan Farkas, Dan's from uh, Romania and his idea and it's on his idea. It's his theory. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But what Dan couldn't understand is why they, he calls them the euphonauts. Why they do such stupid things or the things that appear to be stupid, you know, and he came up with the idea that it's it's the other way around. That Yes, we are being visited by beings from elsewhere, but they're not a, a few thousand years in advance of us. And they're actually hundreds of thousands or even millions of years in front of us. And on the evolutionary scale, we are so dumb we cannot recognize what's right in front of us. For example, take a television set, stick it in an ant's nest, and the ants will know it's there. You know, they'll crawl all over it. Some of the, you know, the soldier ants may even attack it. But never in a million years will they be able to figure out what, what it is and what its purpose is. And Dan thinks that we might be on, a, on an intergalactic scale. We might be the intergalactic ants. And we are being visited, but we're, we're too dumb to recognize it. And it's interesting he says that because when I interviewed John Day, 
whose encounter happened in the 70s at Avely in Essex, and he had his wife with him and children in the car. I asked John, like I said, we tracked him down many years later in Suffolk, and I said, John, you know, was this encounter real? And when when I say real, was it physically real? And he said, Philip, he says, the best way I can explain it is that not only do I not have the words to describe it, we as a species don't have the words in our vocabulary to describe these encounters. He says, if you go, for example, if you go to a film set, okay, you can touch it, feel it, smell it, you know, wrap your knuckles on it and it'll go knock, knock. So it's physically real. But you look round the back of it and it's false, isn't it? It's an illusion, mm-hmm. you know? And he's, I found it quite profound when I'm, I'm sat there listening to him say this. He says, that's the best way I can explain it. That kind of fits, you know, to some respect with what all these years later, Dr. Farkas is saying, you know, it's there in front of us, but we, we just, you know, we, we, we don't know what it is. We're, 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 not, we're not clever enough. Uh, on an evolution, on a, sorry, on an intergalactic scale to figure it out. And uh, we may never be. Um, but that's just his theory. It's just the idea. And it just kind of made me think, Andy, that's all. It just kind of made me think. And listen, that, that's a great point. And I, I used that. I was speaking with Tim McMillan a few months ago and a really similar analogy about, you know, when if, if you're a fish at the bottom of the ocean, and I apologise to the listeners who heard this before, but if you're a fish at the bottom of the ocean swimming about with other fish, and you go up to the top one day and there's a boat, you know, you've never seen a boat before because the ocean's huge, you know, what's a boat? And mm-hmm. then you get caught and you're taken on board the boat. Yep. And the fishermen have a look at you and you see all this weird stuff and these like, people and, you know, they're on these kind of weird clothing and then they throw you back in the water and you go back to the other fish and you tell them what's just happened. You're going to sound crazy. You know, what's a boat? They just threw you back. They were dressed weird. They had arms and legs. And, you know, how could a fish even comprehend what had just happened? But for us, that's a really mundane, basic task. And, oh, yeah, it was just fishing. Yeah. So, it, as you say, it's that intergalactic scale that... And almost in a way, over the years, we've went from, and even my own theories the last couple of years, that it's aliens from another planet visiting us from whichever distance they're traveling in these craft. And it just seems that it might just be so much more amazing and fantastic than that, that that explanation is either wrong or too basic, or that's just one of many aspects to the phenomena that makes it all the more interesting and intriguing. Yeah, I think the phenomena is far more complex than we would imagine, or it's far more simple than we imagine. And we just, either way, we've missed the point. Um, But when it comes to, um, you know, intergalactic visitors, you've first got to figure out how how would they find us? You know, our, our, our science has expanded enormously. And our knowledge of the universe around us, for example, um, the visible universe, the operative word there being visible, is 48 billion light years across. It has an estimated 2 trillion galaxies and countless stars and planets within those galaxies. So our knowledge now tells us that the universe is far bigger than we ever imagined, which you know amplifies the possibility that there is life elsewhere because there's much there's much more stars many more planets and so on however it also makes it that much more difficult for them to find us 
um, because of the distances involved. And and not only that, I think what, when you're talking about linear travel, you know, moving from A to B, um, we seem we as a species here on Earth, uh, you know, have 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 inside us genetically. I think that we we've got this I call it this curiosity factor. You know, our, our ancient ancestors wanted to know what was over the next hill. You know over that mountain across that ocean you know we had this urge to to explore you know but it doesn't mean that, uh, you know intelligent species elsewhere will have the same urge you might be quite happy sitting and i mean like, look at dolphins you know they're supposed to be the next the next down as far as intelligence is concerned on earth and they're quite happy swimming around in this in the sea making baby dolphins and eating fish and jumping up and down you know, so there may be an intelligence elsewhere in the universe that is quite happy, you know, uh, where they are and have no intention of looking or any thoughts about, you know, are we alone in the universe? We have no idea. Not only that, when you look at um, ufology as a whole and you look at so-called alien beings, there's a whole plethora of them, Andy, different types so not only would be being visited by one species, but lots of them. So again, it's it's difficult for one. I, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll give you um, interplanetary travel tomorrow. Star Trek, Star Trek science. You can go anywhere you want. Where would you go, Andy? The universe is that is that big. You know, the chances of you finding anything else out there that's that's remotely intelligent is is minimal. But, you know, we're led to believe that there's lots and lots of different alien species all coming here. One chap said there's some kind of intergalactic internet. That's why they know we're here. Well, yeah, yeah, super. You know, I, I don't think so. But there is a very real phenomena under our noses that deserves deserves further study. And um, otherwise, you know, I, I wouldn't be wasting my time if I didn't believe that. And um, I think it's... You know, for me, yeah, I don't pin my hat to any one particular theory, uh, Andy, because I think it tends to blindfold you then to other information. I try and keep an open mind, try and be open to other ideas. Like, like, uh, you know, when I read Dr. Farcaster's theory, I thought, oh, well, that, that is fascinating. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it, you know, certainly caught my attention. And um, and there may be more, you know. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I don't pin my, I don't pin, put my hat on any one particular theory. I just know that there is a UFO phenomena. It is real, and it, it deserves further study. And I think that's one of the jobs we do as a UFO researcher, Andy, is we document the evidence to the best of our ability. That's not just me. That's all of us around the world who are involved or have ever been involved in this subject, because it's still. Uh, you know, a, a relatively new subject, and we document the evidence in the hope that somebody, at some point in time, will be able to make sense uh, of 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 this phenomena. If you go back in time, you know, people would stare at the skies, and they would, you know, the amateur astronomers would note things, and they had no idea what they were looking at or what they were dealing with. Suddenly, as our science progressed, you know sometimes hundreds of years later that they were able to say, well, this is what they were documenting way back when, you know? So we're in the same position. And um, I think all in all, we don't do a bad job saying we've got no funding. 
no experience. You know, we just have this this urge to investigate this peculiar subject that we call UFOs. Uh, and I leave it at that. Oh, and that's, that's very well kind of summed up as well. I appreciated that, Philip. Listen, I'm, I'm an Oasis fan. For any anyone who doesn't know British band Oasis, you'll be very familiar with them. And there's a song, The Master Plan. People should check that out. And one of the lines in The Master Plan is, all we know is that we don't know. And I think that sums up ufology as a whole, that there's so many theories. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of it could be. There's a lot more it couldn't be. But at the end of the day, none of us know. We're all trying to find that same answer. What it does do nicely, though, is shift on to another publication of yours that I, I feel was very relevant to bring up as we're approaching the 25th anniversary, and that is the Roswell Alien Autopsy. Uh, and you've released that publication, The Truth Behind the Film That Shocked the World. Now, this is more of a controversial topic and subject, not that alien abductions isn't, but this is one that many feel has already been debunked. But it's one of those little nuances or mysteries it just doesn't go away from the topic so for anyone who doesn't know do you want to just bring people up to speed that we're talking about the the alien autopsy footage and what it is mm. yeah yeah you're making me sound old Andy. you know <laughs> so, you know going back all these years but yeah i mean back in for me it all began in 1993 i was um among other things, I was the press officer for the British UFO Research Association and had a letter across my desk from a company called the Merlin Group. And um, the head honcho was a chap by the name of Ray Santilli. And it was just inquiring uh, whether we could um, assist him in making a, uh, a sort of a general UFO documentary. So I wrote back. This is the days again before email. Um, we exchanged some correspondence and a few faxes. I pitched some ideas to him. Then I spoke to Ray a couple of times, and then out of the blue, he tells me that he has film of the UFO crash at Roswell in New Mexico in 1947, and and one of the aliens being autopsied. So, you know, my reaction to anything like that is, well, show me you claim you've got something, show me it. So he went, yes, I can, no, I can't. Anyway, um, at the same time, I was hired by um, um, a production company in the UK to help promote the Travis Walton movie, Fire in the Sky, which was being released here in the UK. And one of the things that I did uh, was organise a speaking engagement for Travis Walton and Mike Rogers in London and a press conference uh, thereafter. So, I, you know, I, I was there, of course, and it just so happened Ray Santilli's offices weren't far from where we were having this, um, this speaking engagement. So I invited him along. That's when I met him for the first time. He then went on to tell me that, he, he you know, his, his business was mainly music, um, and that's why in, in, he said he, he claimed in 1992 he was out in Cleveland, Ohio, looking for old film footage of, uh, you know, the, the rock and roll stars before they were famous, Elvis and so on. He said he bought a piece from an old boy. There was no copyright, so it was just a cash transaction. And he said just before he came home, this old boy came back and said, well, if you thought that was good, before I was a, you know, a freelance cameraman, I used to be a cameraman in the military. And in 1947... I was 
taken to Roswell, New Mexico and filmed the crash of a UFO and the autopsy of the aliens. And I probably saw the film and it was sent to headquarters, but there was a few canisters that needed some extra processing and I kept them back. And he says, they, they never came from. And I, I've got them. Do you want them? And it cash transaction. Uh, don't release my name. So, again, I just asked the question, Andy, you know, show me. Yeah, I can. No, I can't. So I, I told him to get lost in the end. So we, we moved forward in time to 1995, early 1995. And I was, again, um, a, a video landed on my desk. And it was a movie called Roswell. Um, starring Cal McLachlan, you know, and it had been sent for review. And I thought, oh, well, if that Santilli guy still claims to have this this Roswell footage, I got his business card, I phoned him up, and he said, yeah, I do, Philip, but you, do, you, but you don't believe me. And I said, well, I can't believe it until you show me it. So he said, okay, make an appointment with my secretary, and come on down. You know, I, I live 200 miles north of London. And I'll show you. So my wife and I made the appointment. Off we went. And over a period of the next couple of months, Ray showed us several pieces of film, two of which were of a, an alien being autopsied in a, in a white room, you know, cut open, brain removed, giblets taken out. So I asked Ray, uh, and I, I thought to myself, you know, we need to get this out into the public domain. I said, what, what are your intentions? What are you going to do with this footage? And he said, I'm making my own documentary about it. So I'm going to put it on video. And you'll be able to buy it direct from me or you'll be able to buy it in your local high street video store. And I said, well, I was also a Buford's conference organizer uh, in August of 95. I the conference already set up. I just said to Ray, will you show it at our conference? And he said, on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, you help me investigate it. So we shook hands. There was no contracts or money or anything like that involved. And in fact, Ray did make his own documentary because I wrote it for him. You know, it's um, it's narrated by Brian Blessed. Uh, and I also did lots of other things, not just write it, which he didn't take advantage of. He paid me a fee for that. Uh, not a huge fee, you know, uh, and that was it. And um, the story leaked out into the newspapers quite by accident. And then there was a free for all, you know, it just shot around. As, you, as, you, as you've said, Andy, in 1995, the X-Files was at its height. Um, there was also a, a, another TV show called Sightings in the US that was was doing well. And um, Ray sold it to a variety of TV companies. He turned up in August of 1995 at the Pennine Theatre at Hallam University, um, showed the film. I mean, it was a packed audience. It was... It was so packed, we had to hire another room upstairs and show the whole conference on closed-circuit TV. We had film crews there from around the world, uh, and he showed it. And uh, the following day, it went out on television around the world. And and by this time, you know, email had just started, the internet had begun, but no Google or anything like that. It, it was the kind of first grand UFO fight or debate, or call it what you will, that went on online. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, I, I, I chipped away at it year in, year out, simply because it became personal to me. And I was accused of being Ray Santilli's accomplice. 
Um, at the time, um, when it was first came out, like I say, Ray paid me a small fee to work on his documentary, which any TV company would do the same. You know, it just happened to be him. But my wife and I were having a, um, a large extension built on the, on the side of our house. People saying, where does Philip Mantle get the money from? From that, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He doesn't have that kind of money. Well, I don't know how they knew that, but they were right. I didn't, but my wife did. My wife had had a, a property of her own before I met her, which she sold. And we used some of the proceeds from that sale to build the extension on our house. We'd, we'd got a small family by now. Kids were growing. We'd, it was either move or build an extension. So we built an extension. So it became personal to me. And I thought, I'll show you, you know, I'll show you, a, you know, wild accusations, you know, thrown at me. And sometime, you know, if you throw enough mud, it sticks, Andy. So year in, year out, I would chip away, I'd chip away, and I'd find a bit of information out. I made the decision that in public I would support Ray Santilli, you know, rightly or wrongly. But underneath, you know, behind closed doors, I was just trying to find out what was going on. And I was confident that once it went out on television, that people would come forward. And they would either come forward and say, that's me, I'm one of the actors, or that's it was filmed in my studio, or whatever. Or some other story might come out. You might get some young man come say, well, my grandfather told me about this story. I think that's him. They say, you know, whatever. But nothing. I mean, it was, you know, complete silence. So we just had to stick at it. I worked with a number of colleagues here and overseas, but I kept at it year in, year out. Cut a long story short. I got most of the pieces in place, but there was still, it was clear from day one that Santilli wasn't the brains behind this. Uh, he never really made anything. He was a buyer and seller of things, or he would get some old pop groups from the 1960s to re-record some of their original hits. And this, you know, uh, this kind of thing. So it, it just didn't fit. And we got a name, uh, and that name was Spiros. Uh, we even found this sculptor who made the dummies. He was called John Humphreys. He was just about to tell us everything when he stopped talking. But he mentioned, he said, he said, you must speak to Spiros. But who is Spiros? You know, who, who, what was that? And then in 2006, uh, a colleague of mine by the name of Russell Callahan. Russell used to work on UFO magazine. Uh, he now ran his own little magazine called UFO uh, Data. And he had a phone call from a chap claiming to be the man behind the alien autopsy film. So Russell said, it's not me you need to speak to, it's Philip. So he got his number, I phoned him up, and hey presto, it was Spiros Malaris. And as soon as Spiros started talking, he filled in all the blanks. Spiros had been trained as a motor mechanic as a young man, but his passion was twofold. One was filmmaking, the other was a magician. So he did both. And he told me the whole story of how he, he accidentally met Santilli in 1995, how the, the story of the alien, he made, he was the brains behind the making of it. The sculptor who made the dummies was his best friend, John Humphreys. Told me, not did he tell me the whole story, Andy. Uh, I later went to his house, met his partner at the time and her daughter, and he showed me all his files, you know, diaries from that, that time. Where in meetings with Ray Santilli, yeah, he's quite a good artist as well. He'd even painted his own storyboard, 
uh, not sketched it, painted it. And he'd got faxes from Kodak wanting to know the edge codes for film for 1947. Military vehicles, U.S. military vehicles. I mean, all kinds of stuff. He even had telephone uh, recordings with some of the people involved. These weren't done on the on the quiet. They, you know, he told them up front, am I okay to record this? And, you know, and, and their admission that it, the film was a fake. So, you know, Santilli, just after this, released uh, a movie starring Anton Deck uh, called Alien Autopsy, distributed by Warner Brothers. He now changed his story. He said that, yes, the film was real, but most of it, by the time he got it, had deteriorated, and he already had a few frames left. So they made, in inverted commas, a restoration, and that's what you see. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a restoration, it's, it's a fake. You know, Spiros had already told us, and in fact, he forgot when making up this, this new theory that he actually showed us two separate autopsy films, Andy. Same creature, you know, same room, same people, same instruments, but the other one, the creature had no damage to its leg. The one everybody's seen on television or online has got a big hole in the leg. The other one didn't. They did a slightly dip different medical procedure. It was a bit, bit brighter was the film. So if you're doing a, a restoration, Andy, you can't do two different ones. If I was going to, if you were a, you know, an art restorer and I hired you to restore a painting of mine, you wouldn't just make another one just in case. And not only wouldn't you make another one, you, if you did, you wouldn't make it different. You know, if you're restoring the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't do a spare one and give her blonde hair and bigger boobs, would you? You know, <laughs> so his restoration, <clears throat> you know, idea bit the dust, but he still maintains that to this very day. And there are still people that for whatever reason, and they want to believe that the alien autopsy is real, that Spiros is some kind of paid misinformation agent. He's not. He's a, he's a, he's a filmmaker. He's a, he's a, 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 a magician. Is a businessman, you know, and um, it, it's a hundred. So what I've done in the book, uh, Roswell Alien Autopsy, again, it's a revised edition. I, I've made it in an eight by ten format because a lot of the early work was done in paper format. So like all the letters from Kodak and things like that. So I've, I've reproduced them all in full, you know. Um, so you, you, you know, you, you, again, you, it's almost like handling the, 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 the items yourself. They're all in my archive here, but I've, I've put as much, so I bring it right up to date, S- start with, you know, the genesis of the story right the way through to today and, and everything in between. So if you've got any interest in the alien autopsy film, it's all there for you. And again, like, like a lot of our other work, I, I allow you to make up your own mind, whether you believe what my research is 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 good enough to prove it a fake or not it's entirely up to you but there is no doubt it is 100 percent fake thank you very much for sharing that and i think it's one of those those bits of footage that you really want to believe it's it's true and it's real but there's been enough over the years people like yourself have shown that you know there's enough evidence here this this wasn't real um there's, there's other examples you know skinny bob if you've seen the youtube footage mm-hmm. 
Um, you've got the kind of the frame looks deliberately degraded, and again, it looks it looks good. You can't say it doesn't look good. Um, again, there's the the viral footage online of the more CGI looking alien creature talking about why we're here and they're us from the future. And again, graphics and effects are getting so so good now that, and I discussed this in one of my previous shows as well that it's almost getting now that things look too good to be real and well, we've now passed the point yeah, of what would yeah. what would real footage look like because we've got past the point that that looks fake that looks cheap that looks like someone's thrown a frisbee and taking a picture yeah. to the point where people people on the laptops in a couple of minutes can smash up some incredible looking footage mm-hmm. and well what happened with the alien autopsy film andy is it it's it spawned a cottage industry if you go online there's lots of alien autopsy films from different parts of the world <laughs> you know and i was i was speaking to a colleague in the states not long ago and as far as he's concerned now with any photograph or any film it's automatically considered fake until proven otherwise because as you've pointed out the technology is so good today yeah you know that that um that you, you can't trust it and, and i think he's right you know i think it's the right approach but the alien autopsy you know, it was a huge story, Andy. You know, like you said, you were only a, a young a young kid at the time, so you'll not remember it. But they, they, it was a huge story. There's still a lot of interest in it. You know, the backstory behind it, I've only touched on the surface of it, is is equally as interesting of how how it it, it began from from you know an off the cuff remark to 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 being viewed by millions around the world and 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 even being in a movie you know so the backstory is equally as fascinating i've tried to put some of that in there uh, but but um you know Sp- Sp- spiros is hopefully tr- trying to write his own, his own book he'll admit he's, he can do many things but he's not the world's greatest writer um he has written some of it because i've read some of it and uh, hopefully he'll get it finished at some point, but it's not the top of his his list of priorities. Um, for example, he was he began work on it again earlier this year, and he was one of those that was admitted to hospital with COVID nineteen. Uh, it wasn't in hospital very long, but it took him three or four months to actually, you know, overcome it once he got out. Um, so you know, other things that his priority. Uh, but you know, keep our fingers crossed. But you know, all the information you really need is, is in my book anyway, Roswell Alien Autopsy. And um, earlier this year, uh, b- based on my book, I made a four-part uh, TV documentary. It's on Amazon Prime and, and Apple iTunes, and it's called Alien Autopsy, The Search for Answers. And it's a four-part documentary. Um, I w- of course, I'm going to recommend it, but it seems to have got some some good feedback from those that have watched it. And again, we go, you know, right from the beginning, right the way through to to uh, uh, modern days and what's happened in the last 25 years. And um, you can, you know, there's, there's archive footage in there. And there's even an interview with uh, Ray Santilli himself, a modern one, as well as an old one. So how they managed to get him in front of the cameras, I don't know. But uh, they did. And, and that's, that's out now. So have a look for Alien Autopsy, the search for answers. You might you might like it. My lasting memory of the alien autopsy footage, or my first memory of it, 
And the one that definitely sticks with me is I was, again, not to rub it in, but pretty young. I was like eight or nine years old. And whenever I was in video stores, like, you know, if you were in Blockbuster video to, to take people back or, or HMV looking at video cassettes, it was always in that kind of strange section. And you would always see the alien and it'd be alien Roswell footage, real movie, real autopsy. And so, yeah, I, I remember passing by those all the time. Um, listen, before we hit the quick fire round and some listener questions, I, I really have to feel I, I have to touch on this. So being from the UK yourself, something myself and my co-host Dan have discussed at length. And some of my, my guests have had on Jay from Project Unity, who's been gaining a lot of, a lot of great press recently as well for his work how the uk covers ufo news what are your thoughts how how the uk currently approaches the topic philip from a mainstream news point of view yeah yeah i mean it goes in peaks and troughs really you know um i mean for example in the in the mid 90s um despite the x-files or i would say maybe because of the x-files that might have played a role because of the alien autopsy but more so we had people like dr john mack step forward john was a harvard professor you know uh, pulitzer prize winning author and he stepped forward and said you know this phenomenon needs to be treated seriously and it's real you know and people better start and listen now here you've got you know a, a man who's top of his tree this is not some some backstreet wacko and so you know the the press um, started to to realise it, and we got some fairly good, you know, honest coverage of the subject as a result. But you have to remember, Andy, that the newspapers aren't there to do us any favours; they're there to sell more newspapers. You know, and I've I've often said, you know, about the only thing you should believe in a newspaper is the date on it, and you should double check that anyway. And the tabloids will always be the tabloids, um, you know, and and they don't pretend to be anything else. You know, love them or hate them, they are what they are, uh, you know. And um, the coverage of the phenomenon um, goes up and down, you know, uh, and it just depends on who's the editor. I was quite lucky at one point. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but I got very friendly with the deputy editor of the Daily Express, who was vastly interested in this subject. He was a very, very intelligent guy could talk to you about oh it was knowledgeable on a whole range of subjects he's a, a published author in his own right as well not in this field but in various fields and i got him to to, to, to run a couple of serious features um but when i say i got him it was the other way around really he approached me um so it, it can also depend on who's running the show and of course, editors and, and deputy editors and feature editors, they, they change all the time. Like I was very fortunate when I met Carl Nagatis. Carl was working, I believe, at the uh, the Sunday People at the time. And um, and he did us some some half-decent coverage. He still had to have that, you know, that, that tabloid appeal to it because that was their readership. But he tried to keep it as serious as as, as their as their the ethos of the paper would allow, if you know what I mean. And so if you deal with the tabloid now, which I have done recently, you know what to expect. If they say something stupid or put a daft photograph in, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's to be expected. But having said that, you know, I, I think 
the coverage that's been obtained in the New York Times these last couple of years can only can only help, can only benefit us. I mean, I, w- I was even discussing those events, you know, on, on the BBC News in the afternoon. I think the only time I've gone out live on the BBC TV and it was about, you know, what was what was being talked about and discussed in the New York Times. Uh, and, um, it, you know, sooner or later, it, it, it will it will rise again with the, the serious side of the subject. But let's be honest, you know, when it comes to anything like the Department of Defense's admissions uh, and we haven't got anything that we can offer the news media in the UK, we haven't got a UK equivalent of that. So, yes, I'm, I may get some of the tabloids to look at without consent. They'll pick on some of the, you know, the more curious aspects of it. I have no doubt about that, but that's the way it goes. Now, if I got a, you know, uh, a classified film from the ministry of defense, you know, shot by an RAF jet that was releasing for the first time, I think, you know, we get a different reaction, but I haven't got it. And as far as I'm aware, nobody has, but I may be wrong. You know, maybe we've got a, a secret, UFO study program like the Americans had that we're not aware of. Uh, who knows? So it works both ways. And, the, and you know, you, you should be aware of, of what you're dealing with with the media. And, and if it if it turns around to bite you on the bum, don't crow about it because you should have known that in the first place. So, you know, I've, I've got uh, an inquiry in my inbox that I'm going to deal with t- tomorrow uh, from a tabloid newspaper. I could just ignore it. You know, I could just refuse, say no, thanks. I'm not interested, but I'm not going to. You know, I'm I'm going I'm going to answer the questions they've asked, and if it ends up with a silly headline, then it ends up with a silly headline. But I'll I'll take I'll I'll take that on the chin. And that's the way it is. You know, it's, it is really as simple as that. Do you think if we as a nation, because you've got that whole very British stiff upper lip, you know, it's not proper to talk about. You know, um, if we had someone from our military, again, if, if you just basically copied and pasted the Lou Elizondo story, and I'm not necessarily saying we had the rock star former group, but we had a small section of the, the former government, former military come forward and say, look, this thing's worth investigating, um, whether or not they provided footage or not, it's by the by. Do you think the British public would have the appetite, though, even then? for that type of content like that the, the US has had? Yeah, it's difficult to judge. I mean, you know, interest in the subject, you know, I, I've been involved since since 1980. It's when I began my, my active involvement, Andy. So public interest has, has, has gone up and down. It peaks and troughs. Like I said, in the 90s, it, it was an all-time high because of the X-Files and all kinds of things, you know, and... Um, and John Mack and, and various other aspects all seem to fall into place at the at the same time. So, but there is still, you know, public interest for it. You know, conferences still sell sell out. Uh, thankfully, people still buy books. Otherwise, I wouldn't be running Flying Disc Press. Uh, and you know, so it, it's it's difficult to judge from a de- but that you know, I mean, one of the biggest stories from the UK point of view is is the Rendlesham events from uh, December 1980. And they didn't make it into the newspaper until 1983, when the news of the world, of all all 
publications ran it on their front page and there was huge public interest in it so it it may take another something like that we don't have another rendlesham you know we, we, have, we still have sightings and encounters but there isn't that that blockbuster you know event that's gonna get people to to to, to take a second look and and uh and, and watch it on the news or pick up the newspaper or listen to a radio station that's covering it we haven't got that and um, so we're reliant on coverage from places like the states, but not necessarily, you know, exclusively. But and uh, but but what we do re- know about this phenomenon, Andy, that none of us know what's around the corner. Nobody knows what's going to be in my inbox tomorrow. It could be that 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 story that you get the public, you know, back on board again, or it could be one of your listeners that contacts you tonight, say, Andy, it's curious that mr mount should mention that because i've got this you know uh and and away we go again so you know wait and see but you know the things that's coming out of the states can only be good and any listeners who want to send me that smoking gun they're welcome to do it as well uh that would be great and listen that was a question from myself uh, dan my regular co-host on a lot of my my side shows uh yeah, he asked that and also UAP UK on Twitter had asked the same question. So thanks, Philip. A couple more listener questions. I've got I've got quite a few. I've narrowed it down to, to four or five. Um Drew Williamson wants to know, in light of the Wilson document, uh, can you ask Philip about the comment therein that abductions are not real? Do you think that delegitimizes the document and how would validation of the document change your view of alien abductions? Well, I mean, you know, the Wilson um, documents uh, were dumped online uh, shortly after a, 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 an email thread about the alien autopsy. And they're both from the same source, we believe, uh, which is the late uh, astronaut Edgar Mitchell how they've been obtained and how they were then subsequently dumped online. But Admiral Wilson has been interviewed since then and he's denied that this interview ever took place. And therefore, you know, those comments uh, are not attributed to him. But of course, even if they were accurate uh, and and the, the documents were authentic, you know, could the fact that he's saying that abductions are, uh, are not real, is that is just his own opinion? We don't know. You know, it could be just an And his opinion is no more valid than yours or mine. Just because he's an admiral makes no difference at all, you know. So they've still got to be verified. Uh, and the problem is, of course, it's, we don't have the original documents. It, this is something that's appeared online. Shortly before that, the email thread that related to the alien autopsy that was you know, sent to Robert Bigelow at the time uh, involves the same people, you know, Eric, Dr. Eric Davis, not Admiral Wilson, Dr. Hal Puttoff, uh, Dr. Colm Kelleher, and the, the top one is Dr. Christopher Kit Green. Kit Green is, in fact, they're, they're asking him the questions and they're asking him to verify some of his previous statements. And guess whose name pops up in the middle of all this? Yours truly. My name's in them as well, because it's all to do with the alien autopsy film. And and the full story of it is in is in the book. What I did, and I won't mention the names, but I contacted a few of the people that are on this. This is an email thread. And just said to them. All I want to know from you is, is this this document authentic or not? 
And they came back and said, yes, it's authentic. Others have disagreed with that, but I asked the people uh, involved who was actually mentioning it, that, you know, and they said, no, it's authentic. Um, but that's a different one from the Admiral Wilson document, of course, but it's claimed they come from the same source, which is the late astronaut Edgar Mitchell. So, you know, the jury's still out on, on the Wilson um, memo, the document, call it what you will. There's those that think it's the smoking gun. I don't think it's quite that because it hasn't been proven. And Admiral Wilson himself, of course, has been interviewed and has, and has denied ever meeting uh, the gentleman who interviewed him or claims to have interviewed him. So that one's going to run for a while, I think, Andy. Um, let's just say we're on the fence and the jury's still out. Excellent. Thanks for that question, Drew. Um, Shiruz Jelani, he's looking for trends. So not necessarily a question, but he feels within the abduction phenomena. Do you, have you found uh, male to female ratios, blood types, inherited conditions such as autism, IQ, uh, anything like that you would share? No, it's, it's a simple no, because we've never asked those questions. Like we, like we discussed earlier, uh, we were more concentrating on what the abductee experienced, what they saw, what, you know, was there any smell, did it make any noises, you know, what colour was this? Never asked anything about them in person. There was a colleague of mine called Ken Phillips at Pufora. Sadly, Ken's no longer with us. But he and I believe it was an Austrian professor called Dr. I think it was Alexander Coyle or Kuhl were trying to do that. They called it the anamnesis project. And, and they weren't looking at what your experience was. They were looking at you as a person. They had a whole raft of questions. Um, sadly, you know, Ken died many years back and that, that you know, the, the project died with him. But um, I'd have to say to the to the the person who may, uh, you know, asked that question. It's a great question, but the answer is we've never asked those questions, so we just don't know. No, that's absolutely fair enough. Um, Wiggy is asking, are there any places where it's more frequent than others? What UFO sightings are we talking um, about? Abdu abductions, I believe the question is. So even I, I in the UK. I, I couldn't find any any location that, that, that seemed to be more prevalent than anywhere else. These seem to be totally random you know uh, you know uh, as simple as that there are hot spots where ufo sightings and paranormal tend to happen uh, and and in amongst it on occasion there is you know uh, an abduction account but not just specifically abductions they just seem to be totally totally at random like we said earlier on these people just seem to be going about their everyday you know life their everyday tasks when these incidents happen and they're not always on their own there are accounts where there's there's several people involved um so again when the debunkers will tell you it's just somebody who's out in the way and has had this hallucination well it, you know that, again that's not an explanation that fits all there was times when there were several people involved um so they just seem to for as far as i'm i can see and it just seems to be totally random Sim, you know no no location is is specific no, that's great. Um, David over in Ireland uh, wants to know, with the UK only a stone's throw from Ireland, are there any cases you know of or have been involved with? Because he's found very little on any Irish cases himself. Well, that's, that's a curious, curious thing. As, as I, Again, as I mentioned earlier on, when we first set about 
researching this book. I, I, I literally drove from one end of the UK to the other, but I couldn't find any in either Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland. I know the Republic's not technically part of the UK, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody with any political comments, but it's our neighbours, you know, and, and part of the UK is joined to it. So it's all, you know, I was looking at anywhere in the, the island of Ireland. Couldn't find any. Um, and I certainly haven't come across uh, any since. However, coming up either probably early next year, I have written a book. It's all done. It's all finished on UFO landing cases in the UK. But I've also included in that the Republic of Ireland. And we have a couple of cases of, of landings. Uh, in in the Republic of Ireland, so they'll they'll go in in that new book. But as for you know the type of close encounters we've been talking about all all, all night t- tonight, I, I I'm not saying they're not there. It's just that I've not come across them. So and if I had done originally, I would have been across <laughs> on the ferry um, to interview them if it's all possible. I I did communicate with one lady in in Northern Ireland, but you know. I think there was there was something to that, but she seemed very vague, and in the end she just stopped answering my 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 correspondence. Um, so I, I I would say there are cases there I just haven't come across them. No thanks, that's a great question, and there were a few more listener questions, but they've been answered within the body of the interview anyway. So thanks everyone who got in touch with for questions for Philip. Um, so Philip, um, finishing off on our quick fire round, I've got a few topics to touch on. You can say as much or as little on each one as you would like, and then we'll kind of wrap up with how the listeners can get hold of the, the books, okay? Absolutely, yes. First one, a little bit controversial. I know it's something you were a member of, but it's hit the headlines recently for the wrong reasons, is MUFON. What do you think about MUFON and its place now in ufology? Well, you know, I... I um... I was a member of MUFON back in the 90s when Walter Andrus was the, the, the head man. He was the international director. And um, I went and lectured for MUFON. Uh, Walt came here a couple of times and, and stayed with me. Lovely fella. So, you know, Jan Hazen has been arrested. Um, he, as far as I'm aware, he's not been charged yet. But uh, I think in all likelihood he, he will be. But so you, you can't let you know what you know can't tar the, the whole of MUFON with, with 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 the same brush. I mean, I was part of the the uh, the committee of uh, the council members, as they called it, who, who ran Bufora. Um, I was their director of investigations, and, and it, it's very difficult to to run a a a, a UFO group, especially when it's a large one. I mean, at that point, we I think we had about a thousand members. We had investigators who, who you, you didn't know an awful lot about them. They would just volunteer. Um, so if one of them committed an indiscretion, yes, it did reflect on the society or, or the association, but you had to deal with it and, and point out that we're not all the same, you know. And the same goes with MUFON, even though this was the head man. Once it was apparent what had happened, they took decisive action, and, you know, the second in command has now taken over. I have spoke. Well, I have not spoken with him. I have communicated with him um, and uh, wish MUFON all the best. You know, it's, it is very difficult running a, a large UFO group. 
because MUFON's been accused of, um, you know, using their assets for an income stream. Personally, I, I don't see anything wrong with that because you need money to do certain things within a UFO group. And you can't necessarily generate enough income from your, your annual conference and, and your members' subscriptions, you know? So you, you need it, you know, if you've got, if you've got something that you can um, monitorize, um, now I'm not sure there's anything. Same when you put on a conference. What do you want for that conference, Andy? You want to fill all the seats. So sometimes you might pick a controversial topic or speaker that you know is going to guarantee the seats are going to be filled. For example, when we showed the alien autopsy film at our conference in 1995, prior to me finding out and asking Santilli to show it in Sheffield, and a lot of people have, have this has gone completely been forgotten. We actually had two Russian scientists speak at that conference. That was the first and only time two Russian scientists from the Academy of Sciences in Moscow have lectured at a UFO conference in the UK. They were very sceptical. And their names were Dr. Yuli Platov, Dr. Sergei Cherno. They were going to be our main selling point to promote the conference. But the alien autopsy film took over. But what the alien autopsy film guaranteed was a full house. So, you know, those two gentlemen from Russia, plus all the other speakers we had that weekend, were guaranteed, you know, a full house to listen to what they had to say. So it's, you know, and, and you know, before I were upset with me about the way things went, I, it's no secret. And a couple of years later, I resigned and went my own way. Uh, but, you know, the alien autopsy film raised the interest in the subject enormously. So, you know, I, I can understand both sides of the argument when it comes to MUFON. What I, what I would say is it's difficult to run a UFO group. I think we should support them wherever we can. I spoke to Jan Hazen a couple of times a few years back. And not not correspondent. I spoke to him on, on the phone, or it may have even been Skype. And he wanted me to rejoin and I, and I, I, you know, I politely refused, not because I was against MUFON or anything like that. It's just that I've, I prefer to do what I do now by myself, you know, and uh, as simple as that. So, like I said, I wouldn't tar the whole of MUFON just because of one man's discretion, uh, indiscretions. You know, it's been dealt with. MUFON have acted swiftly. They should have acted swiftly on a couple, a couple of other things, but they didn't. But perhaps they've learnt their lesson now, and um, let's hope they can move on for that answer i know that was a sensitive topic but i, th I feel it was worth bringing up um to the stars academy you've you've touched on some thoughts and you made a little comment earlier about lou elizondo what are your thoughts on ttsa well uh, you know they, they they came out in a uh in, you know to the forefront a couple of years back now with the the feature uh in in the in the new york times and Yes, the, the videos that have been released are fascinating. But Elizondo, I believe, was the head of the, the Department of Defense's uh, research. What is it, ATIP, they call it? ATIP, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I believe he was, uh, you know, and I think he's, he's proved he was. 
but they spent 20, 30 million dollars on that project. And uh, you're telling me that, that three videos is all they've got for 30 million dollars. I, 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 it seems a bit of an awful waste of money, unless they were paid huge salaries. Um, but you see on one of the, the videos, you hear the pilots talking to each other and he says, my God, you know, there's a, there's a, a formation a whole of them. Oh, fleet yeah. of them. Yeah. Well, where's that film? You know, so they've promised a lot when you watch their, their first, um, TV documentary series, unidentified. Uh, yes, it was interesting, but there was a lot of filler in there. If I'm honest, Andy, that you could have, you could have done that series instead of six episodes, which I think it was, you could have done it in two, you know, and they've started another series now. And yes, people, you know, it's encouraged other people to come forward, which is always a good thing, but then new people always come forward in one for, you know, from time to time. Um, but we must also remember that these videos are not unique. We, if you go back to 1990 in Belgium, Belgian Air Force released uh, onboard radar f- f- uh, confirmation yeah. of a UFO over Belgium. And these were F-16s, you know, front line of NATO. So there is a precedent for it. And, th- and that rightly got some coverage at the time. Um but so, you know, the the um, the ATIP stuff is not the be all and end all. They seem to have made a lot of promises, but haven't yet delivered. And um, so, again, you know, the jury's out. They've they've either got to produce. I mean, they, they've made they've made they made some mistakes as well. They went to a lecture in Italy, Italy and talked about a case that was a, a well-known hoax, you know, and they should they hadn't done their own work. So no disrespect, you know. To somebody like Mr. Elizondo, I've not met him. Uh, he probably doesn't have, or didn't have, he may have now, but didn't have the the background knowledge of the subject in general. You know, he, his knowledge may have only been specific to what he was working on at the Department of Defence. So, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll let him off in that respect. But they, they need to deliver. And uh, until they do, then again, we'll, we'll, the jury's out. The videos are great but there's surely got to be more. And if they don't deliver, it'll just be another story that, that dies away. Next one is, uh, I suppose, the UK, uh, the closest thing we've had to Louise Elizondo, or the UK's Fox Mulder, as, as he was more commonly called, or still is, is Nick Pope. Mm. What would you like to know about Nick Pope? Your thoughts on Nick Pope's uh, impact or, or presence well, Nick, within Nick, ufology? Nick's... Uh, Nick's um, Impact has been a very positive one because as part of his job, uh, he did deal with UFO inquiries. Um, And I know that because I was one of those that that pestered him when he was in that department, um, Air Staff 2A, uh, the Ministry of Defence. But it was only part of his job. Um, But mixed you know, Nick's been a very positive impact. The man from the ministry says UFOs are real. So it makes headlines, makes people take notice. Um, the only problem with that is that, you know, Nick did that job for three years. And when I say he did that job, he, he, you know, he, he wasn't a UFO researcher for the for the MOD. He dealt with inquiries. That was, that was only a very small part of his overall job. Uh, but, he, you know... The one thing that Nick did, he was more proactive. 
you know, he's, he's the people that did the job before him and the ones after would just give you the the um, the standard line. Nick would would try and help whenever he could. Uh, I have to be fair, but it it didn't follow on once he'd moved on to another department. Um, but Nick's overall impact, I would say, has been very positive, and uh, I'm still in touch with him more so about football. Because you know, every uh, I'll let you into a secret. Nick Pope's an Arsenal fan, you know. <laughs> so we often communicate more about football than anything else. No, that's great. Um, keeping the British theme, Mick West. Are you familiar with Mick West, the uh, debunker extraordinaire? No, I'm not. I don't know the name at all. I'm afraid, Andy. Oh, lucky you. Um, so Mick West is the uh, debunker, and do you know what? He, he's got a hint of charisma about him he's uh got a little bit more exposure after being mentioned by people like jeremy corbell and george knapp on joe rogan's podcast which obviously goes out to an audience of millions but mick is very much british guy um former like game software developer excuse me if i've got that wrong but uh he has done a lot of videos and highlighting of specific parts of those videos that ttsa had a part in releasing and he's famously um, or infamously referred to one of the videos as seen by pilots with their naked eye as being a flock of seagulls, potentially, mm-hmm. um, moving swiftly through the air. He is really keen to get out the the idea that if you've seen the gimbal video where it shows the, the craft rotating or appearing mm-hmm. to rotate, he's more than certain that due to tricks of the light and poor cameras that those those aren't rotating. Um Again, you brought up the comment about the pilots who are mentioning there's a whole fleet of them on the ASA, I believe they call it. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he's doubting they actually saw that and he never, they never saw it with their eyes. So if you're not familiar with, with Mick West, it's... Well, I'll, I'll answer the question. I mean, I would hope that the American military that were filming this thing didn't have pretty crap cameras on board the top of the range fighter jets because if they did and they ever go into conflict then they're going to be in trouble are they you know just yeah. just you know there's nothing wrong with being skeptical you know i can be as skeptical as, as anyone but to say there were rubbish cameras this is an aircraft that cost will cost i don't know tens of millions of pounds just to make yeah. one you know and then you say oh and you know but they 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 stuck a camera on it at the bottom a corner store. I don't think it quite adds up. You know, the, these things are top of the range. And, um, you know, I think the Americans have the biggest defense budget, you know, anywhere to, compared to any other country. They spend yeah. trillions on it. So I think it's unlikely that the camera is going to be naff. And, of course, we also have to remember that there were the, – that. Um, these things were caught on radar as well, so it's not just the camera. It's not just visual, because there were seeing some of them were seeing with the, uh, you know, uh, as you've said, were seeing visually. Uh, but when you listen to the other one and he says, "Oh, there's a fleet of them," it does sound like it. They're seeing them. It's uh, how else would he know? You know, unless he, unless they were on radar, and of course, which would then be recorded. You know, uh, or if someone's speaking into his ear. And it's telling him there's a fleet of them. Well, who, who who's that? And how did they know there was a fleet of them? You know, um, 
But it's a bit like, you know, the Kenneth Arnold sighting. It. We go back right to June the 24th, 1947. He saw this V formation of objects, you know, over the Cascade Mountains. And I forget how many different theories there has been for what Kenneth Arnold saw. One was it was um, pelicans. They were flying across there. Or it was... Um, an illusion. It was the mountain tops, a bit like a mirage. Various mm. others. Well, it can't be in all of these different explanations, can it? You know, the, the, you know, uh, and it's the same when you look at these films. If you want to be a debunker, there's a difference between being a debunker and a skeptic. You know, I often say if you, if you think of the Wright brothers, they were skeptics because the, the the conventional science of the day said you can't fly in a man power, you know. A, 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 a heavier than a man-powered machine. They were sceptical of that and proved it wrong. So nothing wrong with being sceptical at all. The debunkers, on the other hand, will will often take a square peg and try and fit it in a round hole. Yeah, uh, and I've come I've, like going on. Yeah, yeah, and I've come across that time and time again. Absolutely. And uh, lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, disclosure, Philip. Oh, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, it's it's a fashion within ufology's disclosure. You know, when I started in in the 1980s, a very well known. I'm not going to mention him by name, but very well known UFO author in this country was adamant that the government, whoever that was, was going to release the information and tell us the truth imminently. Then you had, you know, a, an organi—I uh, call it an organization—called Operation Right to Know. They were literally standing outside the White House with their placards, you know, protesting. They were the same, you know. The government is going to tell us everything we want to know tomorrow, next week, you know. So it, it's it's something that goes around. In fact, it's just called disclosure now. So you know, don't hold your breath. Because in five or ten years' time, you'll still be waiting, and it'll just be called something different, you know. But let, let's say, let's say, for sake of argument, Andy, let's say we are being visited by beings from another world. Don't, don't we won't go into the argument how they may find us and how they may get here. Who would you choose to release that information to Joe Public? Would you choose Donald Trump? Or I should say, would you choose the, the president of the United States? Would you choose the secretary general of the UN? Would you choose the Pope or the Dalai Lama? It doesn't matter who you, let's say, if you were, if that was going to happen, there would, you know, if, if it was Donald Trump, he's a very divisive politician. So there'll be some people who'll be cheering for him. The others were saying, oh, it's another, another tactic of Trump to get reelected. Plus, you know, there are countries or parts of countries, certainly within the, the, on this earth, that don't have access to the Western media. So they would be totally oblivious. Anyway, what about the, you know, the indigenous people who still live in the Amazon or other areas? They, would, they would, wouldn't know about it. So, you know, it wouldn't mean anything to them. Um, so all I would say is, for me, and that's, that's only because I've been involved for so long, disclosure is just... A trend comes around every five, ten years, just give as another name. So, you know, could well be that the answer is already out there. But like we said earlier, we're just too stupid to recognize it. Who knows? Let me be really cheeky and follow that one up then. 
would you like it to happen if tomorrow that tomorrow someone could be the spokesperson or oh i mean wouldn't it be marvelous let's just think about it you know it's not just in the 20th century that man looked at the stars and wondered if we were the only beings in this universe you know you know i think the ancient greeks did you know exactly the same it's nothing new wouldn't it be wonderful that we finally found that whatever the, you know, that some, I don't care if it's some scientific establishment or a politician or a religious leader is chosen, or it's a group of them, you know, say, you know, we we have made first contact. Wouldn't that be marvelous? You know, wouldn't that be marvelous? And uh, I mean, it's like, I think we can definitively say now UFOs are real. So we can say to all the others, I told you so, it's now a question of what what are they you know that that's the that's the question we should be asking now you know ufo the ufo phenomena is real the ufo phenomena may be plural as well andy might not be any one thing we might be dealing with several um several different types of phenomena that, that somehow has all got bundled up mixed up that's why we maybe we can't find the answer because we think we're dealing with just one thing, and we're, but we're not. It could be several. could be different sides of the same coin, for example. Um, but it would it would be marvellous. But there's still people who wouldn't believe it. You know, this 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 is why I, I, I've often argued. Some people say, oh, they won't release it because there would be mass panic. Well, well absolute nonsense. I mean, if, let's say you go, you switch the news on now, BBC News on, and there's whoever saying we've made first contact. We, we got a message from wherever. Oh, they've landed. Whatever way you want to, you'll think that's great. To be your next door neighbor watching it, thinking, what's he been on? You know, and wouldn't believe it. You know, I think it, going by, going by British reactions in 2020, we would probably run out to the nearest 24 hour supermarket and buy all the toilet roll. So, well, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm just having a drink. So, you know, there would still be a, a, it's like we mentioned the Wright brothers. There was a number of scientists at the time, even though the, the flight at Kitty Hawk had been filmed as well, let's remember, the number of scientists <laughs> refused refused to believe that they'd done it. And it's just like, now I can't believe how this happened. But there's a, a large number of people don't believe we ever went to the moon. You know? And I find it amazing. And I'm, I'm fortunate. I went to watch, to listen to a lecture of Buzz Aldrin here in Pontefract, where I live. Sadly, didn't get a chance to speak to him or ask him a question. But as he's leaving the stage, he's finished his presentation and he's, he's turned to the audience and says, oh, for those that don't believe we went to the moon, just ask the Russians. That says it all. That, that says it all. Didn't have to say anything else, you know, but people don't believe it. And that it would be the same with, we'll call it disclosure for want of a better word. If that was released tonight or tomorrow, they would still either be tomorrow or next year or in 20 years' time be saying, oh, well, I'll rubbish that one. You know, don't believe yeah. it. No, that, that's that's a really good point as well. And I like that little comment from, uh, was it Buzz Alden, you said yes. it was? Yes, it was yeah, Buzz. I like that. It's been great speaking with you, Philip, and we've discussed, obviously, a couple of your works, uh, Roswell, Lillian Autopsy, and, of course, the revised, republished edition without consent. How can listeners get a hold of your books and, obviously, contact yourself as well? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all of our all of our books are on um, on Amazon. You'll find them, you know, in Kindle and paperback. Um, or you can just punch in, you know, flyingdiscpress.com, spell disc with a K, and that'll take you straight to uh, to my website. And you can send me an email via the website. I'm on I'm on social media as well. I'm on Facebook. I've got a Twitter account, but I don't use it very often. But you'll, so you'll you'll find me on there if you want to get in touch. I'm not hiding in a bunker anywhere. I'm I'm, I'm easily available for anyone who wants to ask any questions. That's great, Philip. And I'll put the links uh, in the show description as well, folks. If you check that out, you will see links to buy all, all of the books and obviously get in touch with Philip as well. Philip, it's been great speaking with you. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Andy, and uh, I wish you continued success with with, with your podcast. Thank you. Um, we'll definitely speak again. Bye-bye now. Again, folks, really hope you enjoyed that. Tomorrow, Saturday, the 5th of September, should be the release of That UFO Update, the very first of our weekly news updates from the UFO, UAP news from around the world. Send over any thoughts that you may have with That UFO Update. If you can put the hashtag, that would be great. And let us know what stories you think should be included. So it's just not my opinion every week. This is a show for all you out there listening as well. Again, remember to like, subscribe, and if you can please leave the show review on any platform that you listen to, that would be incredibly appreciated as well. Patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast if you want to support the show in any way possible, that would be awesome. You can donate as a one off at buymeacough.ee forward slash that UFO podcast. Sling a couple of dollars, pounds, euros, pesetas, rubies, whatever your currency might be. And again, that is all very much appreciated as well. And folks, like I say, over this weekend, I've got a couple of shows coming. September, my guest diary book is starting to fill up nicely. Next week, I will be speaking with Jason Carrignan. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. He is a National Canadian MUFON investigator. MUFON been in the news for all the wrong reasons recently, but they do do some really good work, and it'll be great to speak to Jason about a few of his favourite cases and what exactly is involved in his line of work too. So you can start sending me over questions as well, and as the week goes on, I'll start to announce some more guests. Like I say, the diary is starting to fill up, folks. Once again... Thank you very much for listening. I'll let the dulcet tones of Sean Cahill's goblin problems play you out. And as always, folks, remember, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. Everything was weird and everything was